one of the most notorious murderers in Irish history is a polite, impeccably dressed, erudite 78-year-old man named Malcolm MacArthur. In the 1970s and early 1980s, MacArthur was a well-known figure on the social scene in Dublin. He came from a very well-off landed gentry background, and by the standards of Ireland at the time, his life was one of extraordinary privilege. Having inherited a large amount of money after his father's death in the early 1970s, he lived a life of refined hedonism, devoting himself to a combination of leisure and scholarly pursuit, spending his days in libraries and his evenings in the better restaurants and the more bohemian bars of the city. But by 1982, his inheritance had begun to run out, and unwilling to relinquish his quasi-aristocratic lifestyle, he was reluctant to get a job to support himself. Instead, he decided he would rob a bank. In the course of acquiring the things he needed to do so, uh, namely a car and a gun, he murdered two complete strangers. While attempting to steal a car from a 27-year-old nurse named Bridie Gargan, he bludgeoned her to death with a hammer. Two days later, he travelled to County Offaly, where he'd agreed to meet with a young farmer named Donald Dunn, from whom he'd agreed to buy a shotgun. When Dunn took him to a field not far from where he lived, so that MacArthur could try out the gun, he shot him point-blank in the face, concealed his body beneath some bushes, and drove back to Dublin with the shotgun in Dunn's car. He never pulled off the bank job. These murders, as horrific as they were, are not by themselves the reason why Malcolm MacArthur is still so notorious in Ireland today. It was the circumstances of his arrest that ensured his enduring infamy. Three weeks after the murders, Following a very public manhunt, MacArthur was arrested in the affluent seaside suburb of Dorky, in the home of a man named Patrick Connolly, with whom he'd been staying for some days. Patrick Connolly was MacArthur's friend, but he also happened to be Ireland's attorney general, the country's most wanted criminal, the chief suspect in a brutal double murder, was arrested while hiding out in the home of the government's most senior legal official. There was, unsurprisingly, a massive public scandal. The affair contributed to the fall of the government later that year and is still spoken of as among the most bizarre and disturbing episodes in recent Irish history. Although I was a toddler when all this happened, I grew up knowing about it because Patrick Connolly happened to live in the same apartment complex as my grandparents. When I visited them as a child, I was aware that a notorious murderer had once been arrested in the home of their neighbour. In 2012, three decades after the murders. I was in my early 30s and I was finishing a PhD in Trinity College Dublin on the work of the Irish novelist John Banville. Banville's most celebrated novel, The Book of Evidence, is about a louche Anglo-Irish intellectual named Freddie Montgomery who gets himself into dire financial straits and in the process of attempting to rob the home of a wealthy acquaintance, bludgeons a young maid to death with a hammer. Freddie Montgomery is loosely but very recognisably based on Malcolm MacArthur. One evening around this time, as I was leaving the library, having spent the day working on a chapter of my PhD about the Book of Evidence, I passed a familiar looking figure as I walked across the front square of the college. At first, I thought that this dapper man, who looked to be in his late 60s, was someone I had once crossed paths with, a retired philosophy professor, perhaps whose lectures I had once attended as an undergraduate. I caught his eye, and he returned a wary glance. And then suddenly I realised where it was that I recognised this man from. It was MacArthur. I recognised him because he'd been a fixture in the news over the previous weeks, 
having been recently released from prison 30 years after his conviction for murder. I was startled, not just at walking past the country's most notorious murderer outside the library where I spent most of my days, but at seeing the protagonist of a novel I was writing about come alive and walking abroad in the world. From the first, my encounter with this man was characterized by a certain sense of slippage, of permeability between the real and the fictional. Dublin is a small city and an intimate one. And over the next few years, I saw MacArthur numerous times as he walked about the streets. I always was deeply curious about what it might be like after 30 years in prison for a brutal and enduringly infamous double murder to live again amongst people and to live with the inescapable knowledge, his own and others, that he had done these terrible things. Eventually, I decided that I wanted to write about this man to try to get to the truth of what he had done and why he had done it. MacArthur had never spoken publicly about his crimes because he had pleaded guilty, his trial had been over in less than 10 minutes, and so very little was known about this man or why he did what he did. The story of the murders and of the political scandal had been told endlessly and luridly over the years, and always in the same tone of breathless incredulity. But at the centre of this sensational story was a sullen and persistent silence. I wanted to pierce that silence, to break through to whatever lay beneath it. As naive as it sounds to me now, I wanted to know the truth of this story that had come to haunt me as it had haunted my country. I eventually met with MacArthur and convinced him to talk to me for a book I planned to write. He was wary at first, but he understood from our first meeting, when I accosted him on the street, that my approach to him and his crimes would not be that of the countless tabloid reporters and crime writers who had approached him over the years. The straightforward fact of it is that I appealed to his intellectual vanity by describing myself, truthfully but somewhat awkwardly, as not so much a journalist as an essayist. For his part, he understood that I was going to write my book with or without his input, so he might as well take the opportunity to straighten out certain errors he felt had been repeated endlessly about his life since his conviction. Both of us, in very different ways, were motivated by a desire to get to what we saw as the truth. Although the murders were the result of a fantastically botched attempt to pull off a bank heist, there was a sense in which they remained entirely inexplicable. There was no need for Bridie Gargan to die in order for MacArthur to steal her car, and neither was there any need for him to shoot Donald Dunn in order to steal the shotgun he already had in his possession. And at a deeper level, I wanted to know why a man like MacArthur, expensively educated, highly privileged, a man who had grown up on a country estate with a governess and a substantial staff, had turned to crime in order to get himself out of a difficult financial situation. I wanted to get to the truth of his childhood, of his inner life, to try to explain this apparently incoherent eruption of madness and brutality. I wanted what every non-fiction writer wants from a subject. I wanted him to make sense. I wanted a good story about a terrible thing. I spent the better part of two years speaking to MacArthur about his life and about the crimes he had committed. We met frequently, almost always in his small and sparse flat in the centre of Dublin, and spoke usually for several hours at a stretch. He told me about his childhood, about his years in university in California in the 1960s, about his return to Ireland and his time in Dublin in his 20s and 30s when he lived off the substantial inheritance he'd received after his father's death. And eventually, tentatively and with some circumspection, he began to talk about the murders. 
He himself never referred to them as such, but rather to what he called his criminal episode, as though the events of 1982 were a strange interlude in an otherwise morally upstanding existence. The narrative that MacArthur wanted to advance was one in which he lived what he called a blameless existence up until the episode, and then continued to live a blameless existence from then on. He wanted to see himself as not a bad person, but as a good person who had once done bad things. He had committed murders, there was no getting around it, but that did not mean that he should be defined as a murderer. As our conversations continued, and as my book took shape, there arose a deepening tension over this question of whether the murders were an aberration, an episode, as he called it, that could not be said to define the narrative of a life, or whether the terrible acts of violence that he had committed emerged out of a deep stratum of his personality. He was adamant that no explanation for the murders could be found in his childhood. After his conviction, there were numerous stories in the media about how, despite his privileged upbringing, MacArthur's childhood had been one of neglect and abuse. This, he insisted, was nonsense. His parents were unfailingly decent and caring people. Yes, he may have witnessed some violence between them during difficult interludes in a marriage that ultimately ended in separation, but he himself was never a victim of violence. As he put it to me, in one of our conversations, people try to find explanations in the past by distorting the past. But there was never what you would call a thread of violence leading up to 1982. That was simply not the case. I often suspected that he was downplaying the extent of the violence he witnessed as a child and the neglect he was subjected to, and that he was doing this in order to cordon off the murders from the rest of his life. If his childhood experience could even partly account for the acts of brutality he committed as an adult, that from his point of view, he could be seen as the type of person who commits murder. And although he never denied that he had murdered people, he absolutely did not see himself as the type of person who committed murder. But equally, I became suspicious of my own desire to find an explanation for the murders in his childhood. Lots of children suffer neglect of various kinds, after all, and among Irish men of MacArthur's generation, it was almost as common as not to have been the victim of some kind of violence or abuse. Difficult childhoods are sadly common, but the kinds of crimes that MacArthur committed are extraordinarily rare. When I think about the difficulty of writing about MacArthur and this question of getting to the truth of the man, I think about the living room of his apartment where we conducted the majority of our conversations. In that room, certain items were entirely covered by black plastic sheeting. His television, for instance, he kept covered in black plastic. And there was also a low shelving unit in the middle of the room where he kept what he called his files, reams of documentation about the case mainly, entirely wrapped in plastic sheeting. His rationale for this was that it was a way of dealing with what he called the problem of dust. His apartment was extremely dusty, he reasoned, and this was the most effective way he could find to keep the dust off things. But when I thought about this business of covering things with black plastic, it came to symbolize a central problem in writing about MacArthur. It seemed to me a kind of giant redaction mark, blacking out the sensitive information of his inner life. One day, he told me that he had written a manuscript of his own, a kind of autobiography, in which he tried to give an account of his life and the murders he had committed. I, want to see, I wanted to see this document, of course, but he was unwilling to show it to me. It was not to be read until after his death, and then only by his son and the mother of his son. This document, I assumed, was kept with all his other documents under the black sheeting covering that shelf in his living room. Was the truth, I wondered, that thing I had set out in search of, somehow concealed 
under that black plastic. I knew that such an idea was absurd and simple-minded, but for, as, for a long time, I could not help but think of it in these terms. Narrative nonfiction writers and writers of true crime in particular are supposed to give readers the truth of a real event or person, or at least a satisfying sim simulacrum of the truth. But the more time I spent with MacArthur, the more preoccupied I became with this quality of the unknowable. The longer I spent in his company, the longer I spent listening to him speak about his life, the more skeptical I became that I might ever come to know the truth of him. Even if this autobiographical document existed, and who knew whether it did or not, the idea that it would satisfactorily explain his life and that it would contain anything like the truth was, I knew, little more than a fantasy. My book, as a result, is less an offering of the truth of the crimes of Malcolm MacArthur than it is a reckoning with the unknowability of this man, and in the larger sense, the unknowability of other people and of ourselves. It's also a reckoning with the genre of narrative nonfiction writing, with the limits of any attempt to render a life, in a particular one characterized by violence and chaos, into a coherent and satisfying narrative. One day, around the time I was finishing the book, I went to the National Gallery in Dublin to see an exhibition of the work of the Swiss artist Alberto Giacometti. The exhibition featured work, um, sculptures and portraits mainly, from throughout Giacometti's life, from childhood right up until his final years. And the thing that struck me most about his work, about his career, was that all throughout his life, he kept making images of a relatively small number of people, including repeatedly his brother and his wife. And the reason that Giacometti did this was not just that these people were close to hand, but that the more he looked at the faces of people familiar to him, the more mysterious those faces came to seem to him. His work was in some sense a reckoning with the way in which the faces of his subjects eluded him. He once wrote, The human face is as strange to me as a countenance which, the more one looks at it, the more it closes itself off and escapes by the steps of unknown stairways. I was deeply struck by Giacometti's sense of the elusiveness of his subjects' faces and the way in which his art was deepened by it. I came to see it, I came to see in it a reflection of my own encounter with Malcolm MacArthur, of how the more time I spent listening to him, the more time I spent looking at him, the more he seemed to recede into shadow. And so my book, A Thread of Violence, as much as it is an account of a life and a series of crimes, is a reckoning with that essential, essential elusiveness. It is, in its way, a portrait composed entirely of shadows. Thank you.